Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Hello, Miss Pierce. How are you today? I'm doing good. You were a little bit late to the show this evening. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it's been a busy day. Let's put it that way at the office. So, another great podcast session we've got going on today. I know we've got to thank Randy Cornelius for hooking us up for with this one today. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to be talking today about the experience of a World War II nurse anesthetist. This is going to be interesting, and we've got a wonderful guest with us today, Carolyn Nicholson. Welcome, Carolyn. How are you? Fine, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Well, absolutely. Talk to you today. And this is your first podcast, right? Yes. Well. You're going to do we'll, great. We'll go easy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, Carolyn, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, I started the nurse anesthesia program in 1970 at the University of Cincinnati. Well, at the time, it was Cincinnati General Hospital. It was a diploma school. I stayed on staff. Uh, what of note, my classmate was Wanda Wilson, our huh? previous executive director yeah um but wanda and i stayed on staff and i worked at uc for 42 years wow the same approximately 700 students uh loved my career focused primarily on obstetrical anesthesia and regional anesthesia and that's where i spent most of my time and lecturing about those topics as well and i retired in 2014 Wow. So what are, you, what are you doing in retirement? Golfing. <laughs> Actually, um, yes, golfing, exercising, book clubs. But I also belong um, and volunteer at two historical societies. So I, I do love history. Yeah. And um, it's fun to be involved in those types of activities. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to kind of blend a couple of your loves and passions together as we talk about uh, this nurse anesthetist in, in World War II, um, because you love anesthesia and you love history. So this will this will be right up your alley, right? Yes. Great, great. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about one why you think this is important, and two, just kind of. Kick us off on, you know, how nurse anesthetists were trained, uh, you know, prior to World War II and so forth. We'll get right into it. 
Okay. When watching movies like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, I always thought, gosh, these are great movies and all the books and things that have been written about all our brave soldiers. But what was missing? The nurses. You don't see much. And I started reading some books. Um, I was always interested as a nurse anesthetist. And there was a book that came out entitled, And If I Perish. It was written by Evelyn Monaghan and Rosemary Nidal Greenlee. And uh, they, it talked about the experience of World War II Army nurses. And if you look in the index, there, um, I think the word anesthesia is only, I, I don't even know if it exists in the index, but many of our books don't have much information about nurse anesthetists, hmm. and it's missing. Even Bankhart's book of nurse anesthesia history doesn't have much. So I got interested as I was reading that book, and then I read some other books. And uh, I, one of the nurse anesthetists that was mentioned is Adeline Simonson. And so I focused my uh, work based on her. Why her? Because she represents any nurse probably in World War II. At the beginning of the war, the Army only had fewer than a 1,000 nurses. By the end of the war, after the call for the volunteers, there were over 59,000 nurses. Wow. And more than half of those volunteered to serve overseas. And Adeline was with the 95th Evac Hospital that went overseas, and the story goes that her roommates... Uh, one of whom said she wanted to join up, so Adeline joined, and her mother said, well, just don't go overseas, and what does any 22-year-old do? The exact That's what opposite. your mother says don't do, <laughs> and she um, went overseas. Of course, they never knew where they were going to go, but I think her story represents many of the nurses at that time, and I was able to glean a lot of information from the books that I read that and they had smatterings of stories about nurse anesthetists but focused mostly on nurses and so it was interesting to try and get more information um, about what the nurse anesthetists did at that time. So why do you think the contributions have been lost and clearly this is a passion of yours and and your you're putting it down, but why was all of this history lost? Well, it wasn't really lost. It was never obtained. When the nurses returned after World War II, what's interesting is nobody was interested in their stories. The VA administration wasn't interested. No historical societies were interested. Um, And so no one wrote their stories down. And when women came back, think about it. They probably wanted, you know, after a war, they wanted to get back to get back home, start families, uh, get married, resume their marriages, go back to work doing what they did. There were a lot of women who didn't want to talk about it. And um, as I read more, what I discovered is even our nurses who were on the front line were exposed to many, many horrible things. Um, Adeline was bombed twice. And I'm sure when she joined, she didn't expect to be bombed. Um, And sadly, most of our veterans are dead. So it took nearly 50 years 
before um, the nurses were even given recognition for their contributions during World War II. And it wasn't until, um, I think, October 1989 that uh, women veterans gathered in Atlanta to attend the first national salute to women veterans of World War II. So almost 50 years went by before they, there was any recognition for the contributions of nurses. And then if that didn't happen, you know that very little was probably written about nurse anesthetists and their contribution. Right, right. So let, let's talk a little bit about nurse anesthetists because how, how were they trained? Was it really on-the-job training at that time? or the um, It wasn't um, until, I think, 1937 that uh, the AANA published minimal educational standards. So prior to that, many of the, the nurse anesthetists did receive on-the-job training. And as I um, learned, Adeline learned anesthesia when she was a student. Apparently, she worked with the head nurse anesthetist and liked it and so stayed on staff at uh, Duluth, St. Luke's Hospital in Duluth and worked as a nurse anesthetist. But her training was on the job. Now, there were formalized programs just emerging at that time in the late 30s, but just like uh, my nursing school um, in 1968, I attended a diploma nursing school, even though, and we were just beginning to see at that time more of the uh, the programs becoming academic. Um, but uh, so I think it was the same sort of thing that, you know, on the job and we were diploma nursing and now everybody is a DNP. <laughs> so things have changed quite dramatically. Um, so you talked about her being sent overseas, but you never did say exactly where she was sent overseas. Well, Do you know? Yes. Uh, she Well, what's interesting is after their training, um, and she was in uh, Breckenridge, I think, Kentucky, they went to New York for um, several weeks, and they left New York, and they boarded the Army transport ship Mariposa, which was once a luxury liner, hmm. and uh, there were 7,000 people aboard this ship. Now, Adeline said it was very, very crowded. She was in a stateroom that was designed for two women, and they put 14 people in there. But the men were in um, cots, and they had 12 inches of space between their heads, and they stacked them up in rows of five to six. What I found the most interesting was that the 99th, um, the Tuskegee Airmen were aboard, but they didn't know it because of the segregation. They weren't allowed to be together. But Adeline said they didn't, they had no idea where they were going. They got on a ship and everyone tried to figure out where they might be going. They had compasses, but with all the equipment, the compasses were going crazy. So a couple weeks later, when they looked out the porthole and they saw palm trees, they realized they weren't in England where they thought they were going, but rather they were in Casablanca, Africa. And the time that they got to Africa, the war was with Patton, the war was winding down. And so uh, some called it the fake war. There wasn't much action. Um, in her letters, 
and what I've written or what I've read, um, they mostly took care of patients' just lacerations or removal of shell fragments, but it wasn't really, really critical stuff. Um, I do have one funny story. They were assigned with, there was, I think it was the 82nd Airborne Division, and there was a special exhibit one day, and the wind shifted, and the top brass were there, and the wind shifted, and Adeline watched in horror as 50 parachutes collapsed and came down. So they were very busy that day. <laughs> oh my a lot goodness. of broken bones, a lot of injuries, minor, but... Uh, <laughs> 50 collapsed parachute all at one time. Oh, my gosh. So um, so they were in Africa until they made their D-Day invasion into Italy. And that's where the real war began for them. And that's where many of her stories come from. So, Carolyn, what agents were they using at that time? She was had administered or was using thiopental, sodium pentothal, ether, nitrous oxide, and Hydrink machine. She was not skilled in regional, but did learn how to administer spinal anesthesia once she was overseas. Um, and I can tell you later about the anesthesiologist with whom she worked. Uh, okay. there, was, there was no special designation in the um, table of organization in the Army for nurse anesthetists. They were expected to accept any assignment given. Hmm. But... Um, because Adeline had had training, she volunteered to serve as a nurse anesthetist. So you just went in as a nurse and they told you what to do. Right. Then, but okay. but I, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, what, what happened was there for a 400 bed evac hospital, which always was about 10 to 15 miles behind the front lines. And they followed, they leapfrogged hospitals or, you know, leapfrogged as they followed the front, there was only one physician anesthetist in charge. And that individual had to come up with an anesthesia department. And initially, they were told to use medical officers on their off hours or um, the techs, um, the medics, I guess that's what they called them. And the anesthesiologist who was in charge, um, I was able to get some letters that he had written and I even was able to get information, and I contacted his daughter, and she had no idea that her father, you know, much about him, but she was telling us wonderful stories, too, about his relationship with the nurse anesthetist, and he finally decided that the nurses were the best, that was the best answer for him. Um, he said the anesthesia, the anesthetics that were delivered by the physicians were not of particularly good uh, quality. <laughs> so he, he um, Adeline volunteered, and there must have been a couple other volunteers, and he ended up having eight nurse anesthetists. And he, because there was downtime in Africa, he trained them. He conducted training sessions, and that's where Adeline learned to do spinals. So uh, she had they had a very, very good relationship. He so valued the nurse anesthetists that he was responsible for giving them a um, recognition. So they were granted um, from second lieutenant to first lieutenant. So he, he recognized their ability and thought that they deserved 
uh, this recognition. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. So how were any shortages of anesthesia personnel can, uh, addressed and improved on? Did you find anything about that? Yeah, in your research? I, I did. Before the war, there was a survey done in 1938 that said that there were only 39 training programs that graduated about 250 nurses a year for nurse anesthesia, but we didn't have any certification requirements until the 40s. Now from the physician side, and they were referred to as physician anesthetists at that time, Dr. Ralph Waters, who was the chairman for the National Research Council Subcommittee on Anesthesia, said that just prior in 1940, there were only about 600 fully qualified physician anesthetists and maybe 1,800 to 2,000 moderately trained and maybe 12 to 20 training centers. But both um, nursing and physicians recommended six-month training programs at that time. So Dr. Waters, the shortage was addressed. Uh, Dr. Waters and some of the other members of the subcommittee came up with a training program. It was a 12-week training program uh, to train physicians for wartime anesthesia, and they published a manual entitled Fundamentals of Anesthesia. And from the nursing side, we had Ruth Satterfield, who uh, helped improve the administration, the uh, education of nurse anesthesia. And that um, she, she was responsible, for, she developed this model training program and was responsible for training over 2,000 nurse anesthetists based um, on the military. So they did address it. Um, it's also interesting, um, in uh, Barnes, Helen Lamb was at Barnes, and the question came up, they, they were very concerned about, you know, they knew that they, more nurse anesthetists were needed, but they also felt very, very strongly about not putting them out unless they were adequately trained. So it wasn't just about quantity, it was quality. So there was a desperate need, but they still emphasized the education and the uh, adequate training. Right. And, and you also talked about there was an anesthetic department formed for a, a medevac hospital. And why don't we talk about that a little bit and how that yeah, all came about? Yeah, the, that's the medevac hospital where Adeline was stationed. That's, uh, it, medevac hospitals were 400-bed hospitals. Okay. And so uh, the anesthesiologist, the physician anesthetist who was in charge, Captain Bauer, <laughs> had a horrible job. He was the sole person and had to come up with an anesthesia department. So as I mentioned, he probably asked for volunteers. Adeline had volunteered. And I believe there were probably at least one or two other nurses who had volunteered. 
who had previous anesthesia experience. And I can only imagine that even though Adeline was not trained in a formal program, the fact that she had probably administered anesthesia for a couple of years must have been a wonderful, attractive, <laughs> great news for him. And uh, she helped train. She and Captain Bauer and some of the, the other few nurses helped train some other nurses to give anesthesia. So they, they finally had a department with eight nurses, and he was in charge. And that was the anesthesia department for a 400-bed hospital. So let's talk about some of the work conditions that they must have been had to deal with and things that they were exposed to while they were in the war. Well, Africa was hot. Uh, the temperatures, and this was information I had gotten out of um, And If I Perish, the temps inside the tents could be 130 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. So it was very hot, but freezing at night. General Eisenhower visited them one day, and he was so moved by the fact that the conditions under which these individuals had to work that within a few hours of his leaving, a piping system was delivered and he had it installed over the tent and they ran water through it and it went over the tent and evaporated and cooled the inside of the tent. But in pictures that you'll see, everyone operating, the men are operating without shirts. Now they have helmets on because they might get bombed, (laughs) but no shirts. Um, The tents that they set up, they usually had five or six ORs in one tent. So you can imagine working in the heat with bombs going off over your head, sweating your brains out, very noisy, having to talk through helmets. I think that would be very chaotic. (laughs) And I'm sure that that the nurses still had to wear the white shoes and the hose and uh, they uh, they couldn't go without their shirts, right? (laughs) In in Africa, um, I I came across um, a note that had been written that they wore, the uh, the airmen referred to them as nurses, angels in blue, because they wore these blue seersucker dresses. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also wore fatigues. So they didn't wear white hose and no, not to administer. Thank God. They wore bath towels on their heads for turbans, you know, whatever they could do. Of course, laundry was a problem. Um, Mm. No laundry facilities. They put the nurses up in pyramidal tents. They were about 10 feet apart and they were five to a tent. And they moved, you know, might have been every couple of weeks or wherever they they just followed whatever the front where the fighting was. And so I know the first time they picked up or set up the hospital, I believe it took 24, 48 hours. I don't know. But by the next time they had it done in six hours. So they got to be very quick in setting up a hospital. And they always set the hospital part up first. It took. 33 two and a half ton trucks to move a hospital. Also, I remember reading where the nurses complained in Africa they had scorpions that climbed up into their cots. So they put water underneath the cots to keep the scorpions from crawling into bed with them. <laughs> I guess um, they drowned if they got into the, you know, crawled through the water or something? I or? guess. I don't huh. know. Or they just didn't like the water. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And, um, Exposure, um, Adeline was bombed twice. 
when they made the the D-Day invasion into Italy from Africa, they boarded a ship that was clearly marked with Red Cross markings, and they were with the 16th Medivac, uh, some nurses from Britain. And they had a lovely evening, but when they boarded the ship, apparently they were all dressed in fatigues. And so probably an aerial view might have made it look like soldiers were boarding the ship. Whatever the reason, at 5.15 in the morning, a bomb went off and everything was pitch black. They lost all communications. The ship was on fire. One of the stories that I saw repeatedly in many books was the telling of a British nurse who was stuck in a porthole whose body was on fire and she couldn't get through the porthole. So she was screaming and a 14-year-old corpsman, I guess, uh, picked up a block of wood and knocked her out because they knew she couldn't survive. Oh, my God. Uh, those are horrific stories. And a second bombing was when Adeline was giving anesthesia in um, Anzio, which was known as Hell's Half Acre. And uh, it was, they were with servicing the, all the injured who were trying to protect, Mono, you know, fighting in Monte Cassino so that they could gain access to Rome and then, you know, move on up ahead. So Adeline was giving anesthesia. And um, the story goes that she had a terrible time starting an IV and was administering anesthesia, finally got an IV in, and suddenly they were bombed. There was a a German Spitfire that was trying to outrace one of our our, uh, planes. So to lighten his load, he dropped bombs on the tent, clearly marked with Red Cross markings. And the surgeon shoved her under the table. So when she got up, First thing she did, as any nurse anesthetist would do, was look to see if that IV was still in that she'd worked so hard on. Absolutely. It was. She completed her anesthetic, and when she came out of the tent, uh, she saw nursing shoes, white shoes, their head nurse, assistant head nurse. Um, they lost a lot of people that day. But yet, in um, you know, no one could relate this to mother's home. Nobody knew any of that. So you had to keep all that to yourself until you returned home. Hmm. Families had no idea the exposure of, you know, what the nurses, and this was, uh, you know, anybody that was in a medevac hospital was um, possibly, they were exposed to these dangers. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, you know, we all know that every time there's a war, Really, uh, medicine goes forward by leaps and bounds by what is learned under such stressful conditions. Were there any things that you found in your research that was taken away from the war as far as training of nurse anesthetists or anything like that? You mean, does, how does it apply today? Well, 
How did the contributions of nurse anesthetists during World War II affect the education and training of nurse anesthetists following oh, the war? Well, uh, following World War I, there were only a few hundred nurses, and by the end of World War I, it was over 3,000, I think. Um, and it was the contributions from that war that prompted um, more training for nurse anesthesia or for nursing. And the same thing happened in World War II because uh, they were highly respected. The contributions that they made, um, there was a huge boom in um, anesthesia training, nursing and anesthesia following World War II. So they were really recognized for um, and appreciated for the contributions. So, Carolyn, in, in your research and everything you did on Adeline, um, were you ever able to to meet her or meet her family? Yes. <laughs> um, actually, um, when I lecture on this, um, I sort of save it to the end and show a picture of Adeline's gravestone in Arlington. Um, she is listed in the veteran, you know, the Women's Memorial. But, uh, and I always say, you know, was she a hero? Well, probably not in the sense she didn't get a Purple Heart or anything, but she's my hero because Adeline's my mother, was my mother. And I found a suitcase, all her letters that she wrote home after she died, or after my grandmother died, um, she sent the suit, we found the suitcase and she saved every V letter. And um, the unfortunate thing was that you couldn't divulge much information, you know, like where you were. She could write somewhere in Italy. And when she was bombed, <laughs> here she was bombed and almost died. And she writes home and says, well, I think I'm going to be needing a few things. Could you send me some more clothes and, you know, things like that. But she couldn't say that she was bombed. And she used to tell her mother and father, now, don't worry about me. Remember, I could be killed walking across the street. Another thing um, that's very interesting is that she met a captain in Africa, Captain Marvin Williams, and they um, ended up getting married. So both my parents are buried in Arlington. I'm an army brat (laughs) (laughs) Um, through and through. But um, they both talked. My mother used, you know, a lot of people don't talk about stories, and that's one of the reasons uh, you know, I, what I found is people who have served in the war, some are very open to talking about their experiences and others don't want to talk about it at all. And my parents both talked about it. My father was highly decorated. My mother said, uh, you know, when we were behind enemy lines, it, it was okay. But the other thing that came across through and through was the teamwork. She said they were a family that um, initially the corpsmen did not want nurses with them at all. And by the end, they said they couldn't have survived without them, that they truly were a family. Nobody was more important. The surgeons cross-trained. Nobody was a specialist. You had to learn to do everything. It wasn't about money. I think she got $125 a month. Um, It was teamwork. And I kind of, I thought it reminded me of what our nurses and nurse anesthetists went through with COVID. You know, you couldn't do necessarily what you wanted to do, but you all pulled together. You were a team. 
And that's the theme that kept coming through and through to me was the teamwork. And I think, I think that's great. So, um, but I remember when my mother was interviewed by, um, in Atlanta and then her, the surgeon who wrote the book hospital at war interviewed me at, I was lecturing, I think at Dr. Moya's meeting and, uh, he was in Florida and he came and so I gave him a lot of information and so she's been in a her evac unit's been in about five books so I and with her personal stories um, I felt like I got a pretty good idea of how they worked and what they had to work with um, all the equipment was standardized could be packed up very quickly nobody got to have special things this is what you worked with and you know you had ether nitrous oxide, oxygen, and morphine sparingly, and atropine. And that was about it. And pentothal. Wow. So. <clears throat> well, your mother sounded like she was an amazing inspiration. And I'm assuming that's why you followed in her footsteps? Well, first I wanted to be a physical therapist. Um, sadly, she developed severe rheumatoid arthritis when we were stationed in Turkey when I was a little girl. But when I was in high school, um, I got interested in nursing. My dad wanted me to be a doctor, but I picked nursing and then anesthesia. <laughs> so diploma nursing, diploma anesthesia. But then I went back to, to I got my degree when as an instructor. I went back to UC and got a degree in education and spent my career teaching, um, lecturing, and loving every minute of it. I mean, only 42 years. You never years, went though. to the military, Carolyn? No, I actually, well, I talked about it. I, I wanted I wanted to go into the military, but my mother said, she said, Vietnam doesn't have front lines. She said, there are, you know, I don't want you to go to Vietnam. And so I think about what the nurses and the nurse anesthetists put up with in Vietnam when there were you weren't behind enemy lines. Nothing was designated. Um, it's very, very frightening. And the same thing, the teamwork, the difficult conditions. Wartime is always difficult, but it, it, um, you learn a lot. You learn to work together. Nobody cares how much money you make or who did the most. Uh, you take care of each other. And you, with one, I think the important thing too is during war, you have a common goal, win the war. Hmm. And, um, during COVID, figure this out let's yeah. get through this yeah this is horrible <laughs> how can we do it so well, there's a lot of relevance i think for looking at war times and then relating it to today carolyn as we kind of wrap this up and conclude anything you want to get across to our listeners or leave us with i think the most important message again is the teamwork um common goal that that we just we're all there to do our best to administer safe anesthesia. Um, we all work in different types of conditions. Um, some work in the rural areas. Um, I, because I was in a university setting, always worked in a team care concept. That was how I worked. But um, just that we work together and uh, continue to do our best. And nurse anesthesia will continue. We will prevail. We've gone through many, many things before, and we will prevail. 
And um, there are a lot of amazing stories out there. And I think we can learn a lot from those who have served in the military. Absolutely. Well, we, we want to thank you first for being on the show and for 42 years of giving back to the anesthesia community. And you're still doing it today. Um, you know, I was, well, I'm, I'm teaching a regional anesthesia in the cadaver lab. <laughs> <laughs> so see, you're still doing it today. Exactly. And you know what you're also doing is you're giving a voice to the history of nurse anesthesia and to nursing in general, because like you said, this wasn't written. They didn't talk about the nurses and, and definitely didn't talk about nurse anesthesia. And no, they um, didn't, you know, you're giving a voice to that and, and painting history. So that's another part of this that, uh, we want to thank you for all you've done and all you're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to share that. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. I thought you forgot your name for a minute. You were No, little, I, I, it, it's been a long day, but I did remember <laughs> it right there in the nick of time. <laughs> well, Sharon, if people like our show and they want to help us grow, what can they do to help us? Well, the best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, but make it... Positive. We all know there's way too much negativity in this world. Absolutely. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on our way to number... Number one, just like we are in the CRNA community. We're the number one podcast for CRNAs across the country, and uh, we want to be number one overall. Absolutely. But we couldn't do it without our listeners. We want to thank them so much for listening to us, giving us ideas about other shows and other CRNAs out there who are doing great things. Um, and uh, we want to keep those coming. Yes, we do. Till next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.